Welcome, everyone. This is the Council of Institutional Investors Educational Podcast. I'm Ernie Barquette, a research analyst at CII. Our special guests today are Dan Capinos and Pam Green of Aon. Dan Capinos is a partner and global practice leader for Aon's equity service team, where he focuses on equity compensation, corporate governance analytics, performance tracking, and more. Pam Green is an associate partner who specializes in corporate governance, equity compensation, and executive compensation consulting on a wide range of issues. Stock options are commonly used in executive compensation packages to align the interests of management and shareholders. The rapid COVID-19-induced drop in the market will likely cause many employee stock options to fall out of money or underwater. Among other issues, these underwater stock options fail to align the interests of management with investors and enable short-termism. Today, we'll be discussing stop auction repricing and exchange programs and their expected resurgence with our experts. Without further delay, I'd like to welcome Pam and Dan to the podcast. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Ernie. So the first question I would like to go to Dan. Um, Generally, what are the major types of repricing and exchange programs available? Uh, It's a good question. Generally speaking, uh, there's what we would call a traditional repricing, uh, and then everything else we would call an exchange or or more specifically a value-neutral exchange. Uh, Traditional repricing is very simple. It's very straightforward. Um, It's very employee-friendly at the same time. Typically, the only change is uh, that the strike price is lowered to now be at the money. So if we're talking about an example, uh, we have a, uh, a strike price of $15 and the company is currently trading at five. The only change to the options would be that the strike price is lowered to $5. The, the employee would hold the same number of options as originally granted. Uh, and most of the time, they'd carry forward the same vesting schedule. Um, that is a traditional repricing, very employee friendly. Um, but the, the ramifications of that, that sort of design is it tends to be very expensive, uh, from an, uh, from an accounting perspective. Um, and it doesn't necessarily, uh, address dilution concerns. Um, but the other thing to consider is, uh, it doesn't require a tender offer either in order to execute on a repricing. On an exchange, the other side of the equation, it's typically value neutral because the employee has to give up some number of the original options that are now underwater to get a lesser number of options that are now at the money. So if we had uh, 100 of those options originally at a $15 strike price, we might only have 50 of those options after this exchange now with a $5 strike price. So we have to give up some of those awards in order to get new ones that are now reset. Typically with a uh, value neutral exchange, the uh, vesting is reset as well. So everyone has a new vesting schedule, even if your options were uh, vested uh, at the time of this modification, the time of this exchange. Um, but the reason for that offset is it uh, minimizes incremental expense to the point that there's either no incremental expense made through this change, or if there is any, it's uh, uh, generally immaterial. Um, uh, one of the Side effects, though, of a value-neutral exchange, though, is that it does require a tender offer uh, because this this change is not objectively more valuable to the employee. The employee has to elect to participate. The company can't just unilaterally make this sort of modification. So those are the the two main types of programs we see uh, with value-neutral exchanges being more common at this point. Thanks, Dan. And then, Pam, which programs do you view as being the most favorable to investors? 
Yeah, so um, when investors look at these programs, I think they different investors have different viewpoints. Um, some of the institutional investors automatically vote against an option exchange, no matter what, uh, just because they don't believe in them. They believe, just like the investors who invested money in the company at a certain price, that um, employees of the company shouldn't get the benefit of getting a ratchet down in their price just because the stock price dropped. So some institutional investors, no matter what, will vote against. Other institutional investors um, have a different point of view and actually re you know, review the proposal itself based on the policies that they have internally as well as policies of ISS and Glass-Lewis. Um, and we look at the ISS and Glass-Lewis policies, the ISS policies, which we'll get to in a minute, are pretty strict and detailed as to what uh, they will and they will not accept in an option exchange. Glass-Lewis's rules, while drawn from ISS, are a little bit more uh, loose. They're more sympathetic um, to companies. And even though they have rules, sometimes they even break uh, their hard and fast rules. Um, the first rule that both ISS and Glass-Lewis have is that when you do an option repricing, they don't like it if the executive officers and directors participate. They prefer that this really be for rank and file. Um, with that said, we do have examples of recently where Glass-Lewis did approve an option exchange that executive officers could participate. So they definitely weigh the pros and the cons with respect to the different um, treatment of the employees and how, um, and how the exchange is designed. Uh, the other next important piece for both Glass-Lewis, ISS, as well as investors is what Dan talked about, this value neutral, that they really want to see an option exchange where there is no incremental accounting expense, that the, that the employees and executives give up a number of options in exchange for a lesser number of options um, in order to have, uh, have no expense. They also like to see that those new awards have a vesting schedule assigned to them so that if the awards were vested that had been given up, the new awards are not just reset, but that there is more future retention to those shares as well. Um, of course, the exercise price has to be at or above fair market value on the date of the new grant. Um, and the last rule that they really look at has to do with what option should be repriced. So they have a couple of rules in mind. One is they want you to see grants excluded that are made within the past 12 months. Um, and that's because really if the company um, has been doing its job or something happened and the price has gone down, they don't think that the short, uh, that the short time that the price has gone down is something that should basically reset employees. And the other is that they think that options should be excluded that have an exercise price below the 52-week high and also that the exercise price is at least 1.5 times the current price at the time of the offer. So basically, they want to see options repriced that have much higher exercise prices as to where the stock price is now um, in order that, you know, it's something that the numbers are not going to get, you know, back up to where they used to be. In, in doing these repricings, the investors really want to see that the repricing is necessary because they also understand that instead of a repricing, the company could go and just grant additional options to employees and get the same results. 
Um, and in that sense, the employee would retain both the underwater option and have new options. And since that isn't necessarily in the investor's um, best interest, a lot of investors will look closely at the terms of the exchange to see why it's necessary whether you know, it's needed as a retention tool, the percentage of repricing done for the executives versus the rank and file employee population to see whether it's something that really makes sense for that particular company at that particular time. The only thing that I would add here um, is something that I should have mentioned in the earlier section of this is that um, these exchanges, the value neutral exchanges, they don't necessarily have to be options for options. They can be options for full value shares or restricted stock. Uh, generally, we find that um, uh, investors are going to evaluate them the same way. So there's not necessarily a clear preference on uh, which is most attractive there. The uh, options obviously have some alignment in the sense that they, they need the stock price to go up in order to earn value, where restricted stock tends to have a little bit more retentive value. Those are other alternatives that uh, exist in terms of the designs of these exchanges. Not necessarily one is more favorable than the other to investors, um, but just something to be aware of. Thank you. So from 2008 to 2009, we saw a significant uptick in the number of companies who repriced underwater options. Have you seen any attempts by companies to reprice options since the start of the pandemic? And when should shareholders expect to start seeing these repricing and exchange proposals? So we've actually started working on these repricing proposals pre-COVID, and that's really because a lot of the work that we do has been uh, with biotech companies, and the biotech uh, market had actually started decline pre-COVID. Um, we really don't expect to see a lot of repricings related to COVID really till next proxy season, and that's because of the 52-week um, stock price issue that we discussed a little while ago. So we really expect that companies that are struggling uh, because of the COVID issues are really going to either be looking at this by doing a special meeting of stockholders, either in the fall or the winter, or really waiting until next proxy season, which will be about a year, a little bit over a year after the COVID and after the first um, decline in the stock market to determine whether or not they need to do a repricing. Um, I think the other thing to note that 2008-2009 was a little bit different. You know, back then it was pre-say on pay. There was no say on pay rule, and there were more companies that actually were allowed to do uh, stock option repricings without having to go to shareholder approval because they had in their more companies had back then in their equity plan documents the ability to go to the ability to do a repricing without shareholder approval. They just needed to do uh, the tender offer piece. So I think we're in a very different world now because um, a lot has changed since 2008, 2009. Investors um, have many more um, tools to use that if they see that um, companies are doing this without shareholder approval, they can vote against say on pay, which actually has a little bit more teeth to companies, as well as the investors are much more robust. They have more proxy voting um, individuals at the companies, and they're you know more attuned to what's going on in this area and have more ability to impact uh, public companies than they did back in the 08-09 time. Thanks, Pam. That's a really insightful take on the current situation. Many options that were repriced or exchanged in 2008 saw a rebound in price just a year later, and ISS calls them a last resort to re-incentivize employees. 
Should shareholders view these programs with skepticism and wait out the latest market corrections? It's a great question. And I think this is going to overlap with what uh, Pam was just talking about in the sense that uh, I don't think we're going to see a lot of these proposals come up uh, at this moment, uh, just given the way the rules work and the timing of everything, uh, mainly because of that 52-week high rule. Uh, in order for a company to really uh, execute a program that's going to comply with ISS's policy or ISS's view, uh, they're going to have to wait until this uh, significant drop in the stock price uh, that was part of the, the pandemic um, is about a year away. So I imagine we're going to see more of these in the fall and the winter and even next spring uh, if stock prices stay suppressed. If the market rebounds, this may be a moot point in uh, we may not see any additional proposals come out. But in terms of how a shareholder should view this uh, when these come up or if these come up, uh, I think it's going to have to be very company specific. Um, for a company that was, it's in an industry that, yes, everyone's impacted by uh, the way the world has changed recently, but this company may not, uh, their business may not been, have been as disrupted because they can be successful in a work from home setting or something to that effect. Um, those companies are going to have, I think, a harder time convincing shareholders of why a program like this is necessary, uh, because really they're dealing with a macroeconomic event that dropped their stock price that really impacted everyone. I think we're going to see the, the ones that really uh, come to shareholders, uh, the ones that really start to emerge here if the, uh, the stock market stays where it is, are going to be very company and industry specific. There'll be companies in the hospitality industry or the restaurant industry uh, where they've had to change the way their business operates and it's very company specific in terms of moving forward they have to uh, almost overhaul the way their business runs just to be successful even in a post covid 19 environment um, those will be the ones that i think we see come out here but again there's so much uncertainty around uh, how the market's going to move, how the economy's going to respond. I think it's very much a wait and see perspective right now, uh, and we should know more in the back half of the year. And, and Dan, just to add on to that, you know, I know one of the uh, repricings that we just uh, looked at, when Glass-Lewis reviewed it, they, you know, noted that the entire industry, the stock price had dropped, but they also looked specifically at this particular company versus its peers and noted that this company had a more significant drop than even the industry in which they were, that it was in. So they, they may, it realized that basically, although the industry had a stock price drop, they were even lower and that this company really needed to reprice in order to attract and retain employees, you know, throughout the uncertainty that's going on. Um, I also think it, you know, bit back to depending upon the industry, for example, the biotech industry is very competitive right now and they're still competing for many candidates. And so in that industry, if your company has decreased in stock price because of something particular at the company versus just the overall, you know, macro uh, market and you need to retain employees, it is less expensive in order to, if you reprice their options than it would be again to just grant more options. So I think that is really uh, one of the things that investors um, and and, I, and Glass Lewis and others are focused on when looking at some of these repricings. Thanks, Pam. And that perfectly leads into our next question. So proxy advisors provide analysis of proposed stock auction repricing exchange programs on a case-by-case -case basis for investors. How can investors get the most out of these reports? 
Um, well, so as we said at the beginning, ISS has a really strict view as to how it evaluates the repricings. And so if you look at an ISS report, they will go through each one of those criteria and evaluate whether or not uh, the the criteria was met, and if you uh, don't meet each one, then they won't pass the proposal. So, for example, if you include executive officers, we know before we even start that ISS is going to recommend against it. Um, so, you do need to read further into the report as well as look at the proxy proposal itself because these companies, you know, are aware of ISS's position, um, especially with respect to including executive officers. So they really have been taking the time in the proposal itself to tell their story as to why they think that um, this proposal should go through despite the fact that it includes executive officers. And sometimes the proposals will actually have different provisions for executive officers versus the employees. For example, they may have a longer vesting provision for the executives than they do for the rank and file employees. They may have a different uh, exchange ratio, having the executives give up more options um, so that they get less in return in exchange, in this option exchange. So the companies are cognizant that this really shouldn't just be a way to reset employees and tell them, you know, everything that's going on, don't worry about the past and we're going to reset you at time zero. They're really supposed to be done in a way that motivates the employees to continue to work there, but also shows that the company wants to retain them um, and retain them at the company. Thanks, Pam. And then, Dan, you emphasized earlier about the need to look at the current situation in the macro sense. A company underperformance due to COVID can't be based solely on the shoulders of management. So how should this round of repricing, if it does happen, uh, be viewed differently from past, especially given the uncontrollable effects of the pandemic? Great question. And uh, I wish I had a better answer than it depends. Um, there's still so much uh, unknown at this point. It's hard to uh, predict uh, how these messages are going to play out and, and how these proposals are really going to play out. Uh, since we still don't know necessarily how the economy is completely going to respond or even rebound uh, from this situation. With that being said, though, I think there's a couple of things to pay attention to. Um, first off, like I mentioned, I, I think we a company is going to have to focus on their message being very specific to them. If you're an organization who was able to adapt pretty quickly as a result of this pandemic, um, Selling the idea of an exchange and a reset uh, of your outstanding options might be a tougher message than for a company who's had its world turned completely upside down. Uh, and now they need to reset their business plan, their business model, uh, and things like that just in an order, just in an effort to move forward. Um, I think those messages are going to resonate more. So I'd expect to see more of those situations play themselves out. At the same time, to your point that, um, this was largely an uncontrollable event. Does that mean everyone um, that is maybe in that first category where their business wasn't as disrupted, uh, that they should not uh, reap the benefit of an exchange? In those situations, I could see programs where broad populations of employees are able to participate and reset their awards. Uh, but I think it's going to be very difficult to include executives and leadership in that in those programs. Uh, in those specific facts and circumstances. Um, nonetheless, does that mean that executives can't be included in these programs? Uh, I don't think that's the case. It's largely going to be the facts and circumstances of the company, the industry, uh, uh, how they navigate the future in this 
uh, environment and with it, with the backdrop of the pandemic. Um, but that message is going to have to resonate. And that's where I imagine this one changing. I think if we see some proposals coming out in the fall here in the spring of next year where executives are included, I expect to see uh, the executives treated differently, maybe longer vesting schedules or more rigorous vesting requirements in general in order to justify it. But I think the rationale is going to have to be clear. And that's probably the most important point for companies and investors to be paying attention to is the justification of why a move like this is needed. Um, so in no stretch of the imagination am I saying an exchange is unreasonable. I think these programs do serve purposes. I think they're effective ways of uh, repurposing awards that have lost a lot of value without incurring a lot of costs or adding to dilution. Uh, but we got to make sure the messaging is correct. The rationale is uh, it's very reasonable given the circumstances, and that's going to be very company specific. What are the challenges the company has to deal with now as a result of this change uh, and why the reset is, is necessary? So I expect to see a lot more uh, clear rationale and disclosure around these programs if this happens in the back half of the year. Thank you. That concludes our discussion on stock option or pricing and exchange programs during the COVID-19 pandemic. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I'd like to thank our special guests, Daniel Kapanos and Pam Green of Aon for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at my email, ernie at cii.org. Until next time, I am Ernie Barquette. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.